Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Um, today, I'm super excited about this guest. I heard him on uh, Paul Wheaton's podcast when he first launched Perma Ethos. Later on, heard him on Diego Footer's podcast, Permaculture Voices, and listened to his talk from PV2 about um, starting how you could start a business with uh, just with starts. And I guess that's the way you could say it. And uh, love started tuning into his podcast. I love it. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's called the Survival Podcast. Mr. Jack Spearco, thank you so much for joining me today, Jack. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Oh yeah, I know it's it's an honor. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, just been listening to uh, to your podcast for a while. One thing I just want to say, I don't know how you know, and and I and I'll get into it, but it's just something that like whenever I do a podcast, like I always have to interview people, but like you're like just a machine on your own, and it's so coherent. And I'm like, how does he do that? Like when I like try to record an intro or anything, I just I get so mad at myself because it's just like uh um and ah uh, and um and ah. Uh. It, it, it's it's just forty five years of mental illness speaking to myself constantly. <laughs> That's all that it really is. I think. <laughs> possibly possibly i it's it's smooth and i and i uh it's like i uh i listen to your your point of view and i'm like man like i i really see the world the same way this guy does and uh been really enjoying your show but uh one thing i kind of want to dive into because for me and what i like to do with this show is and it's mainly for me is just figure out what kind of how how people got to where they are and how they got started so um, I guess, you know, because I know it, for anybody that doesn't know, the Survival Podcast is an amazing podcast. It has this amazing community. Um, once I started participating and listening, I started friending a lot of just cool guys that are in the community. And then um, really, and then everything else that kind of comes from that with like your regenerative, all agri regenerative agriculture group. And now the Underground Meadery, which has really been kind of fueled by you and Michael Jordan. And I went to uh, a brew spot today and bought like... 10 different kinds of yeast because that was something you said to do on your show was get different kinds see what you like and i'm gonna go to the store and get some good juice after this but um you know before that i mean you know it's 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 just from everything you started i, I guess like you know what kind of got you on this path like what were you doing before well, I have about a 20-year history in, in corporate America, mostly sales and marketing, and from a, a technical background, uh, specifically things like um, communications, um, cable testing, computer hardware, things like that, uh, telecom services, uh, technical recruiting. Those were all kind of within my wheelhouse, uh, both as an employee and uh, later in life as a, a co-founder and a founder of several different businesses. And, uh, you know, I, I, along the way, I just became less and less satisfied with my life. The more success I had in every measurable way that you can monetarily, materialistically, et cetera, the more disgusted I was with my daily life. I just really didn't you know, want to spend much more time um, being miserable, I guess is the best way I could put it. Yeah. And, and kind of the one thing that had given me solace through the whole thing is, is I had, you know, in 2001, uh, after 9-11, I kind of went back to my country boy roots as best that I could. I started prepping a little bit. And uh, by 2006-ish, we had moved back to Texas from Pennsylvania. 
And I had started this little garden in my backyard. I didn't know anything about permaculture or anything like that yet. I, it was just kind of getting back into the conventional gardening and stuff like that. And I would come home every day and I would be completely miserable because I had like an hour and a half drive in the evenings. And I would walk right through the house. My wife wouldn't even speak to me. She'd just be like, let them alone. And I'd go out. I'd, I'd grab a beer on my way through and I'd drink a beer and I'd water my garden. And then I would be a human being again. <laughs> and, and, and in all of that, I kept trying to figure out, well – if you're so successful, how come this simple little thing that anybody could do, including like a broke-ass redneck, and I say that with no insulting anything toward rednecks or anything because I've been accused of being one myself, um, but like a broke-ass redneck has a garden in the backyard. If this is what makes you happy, th- then, then how can you call this a measure of success? And I, I had built a lot of small passive online income streams where they weren't enough to really support my lifestyle or even a reduced lifestyle that I would find comfortable. Everything that I was doing required me to be in business, like as a businessman wearing a suit and nice shoes and going to meetings and doing you know, the typical things that I think people think of as like a status symbol. And I, I hated it. And, and along the way, we had found yet another company because I'm a serial entrepreneur and uh, – we started doing web development design and, and web marketing services. And I had got a client that was a financial uh, planner, and he wanted to do a podcast. So I bid the job. We got the job. Brought it back to my lead developer. And he's like, well, I can do all this stuff, but I don't know anything about these podcast feeds or stuff like that. I'm like, just build the site. I'll figure it out. Yeah. So I literally fell into doing my show that way. I was like, I might as well do a podcast and start talking about all the stuff I actually – like I knew the financial crisis was coming. This was mid-2008. I knew that was happening. I had kind of a unique insight into it due to some of my uh, pr- professional connections and things like that and, and people inside of companies that we were recruiting for or doing software services for, say, in large companies, you know, Fortune 500-level companies saying, we're already planning to cut back. So I knew this was coming. So I started out talking about basic preparedness, basic gardening and self-sufficiency and homesteading and screaming, get your money out of the stock market. And I did it on this crappy little audio recorder. It was like an $18 um, Sony MP3 player with this crappy taped together headset because I just started it out to figure out how to make it work so that we could deliver this project to a client. And it just took off. It just took off. And what, what happened was... I had spent all these years giving technical presentations, speaking in front of large groups, preparing myself for this without knowing that's what I was doing. Because I would have to stand up in front of a group of 500 people and talk about cable testing and talk about something as as interesting as near-end crosstalk and make that interesting, Uh, which I really didn't give a damn about. Because I'm like, the tester says test, uh, pass, you're good, right? (laughs) But you can't say that, right? You got all these engineers and stuff there. You got to explain You got to make them interested. And every other presenter is boring as heck. And I learned to be a good speaker in that environment. So when I started talking about stuff that I really cared about, like freedom and liberty and and homesteading and, and small agricultural concerns and things like that, it was it was like just flipping a switch. And I decided, you know, kind of like within a month, I went from like one listener, which was me, because I listened to my own show. And by the end of like a month, I had like a couple hundred people listening and they were excited about the show already. And I'm like, I'm going to make this a business. And 18 months later, I sold all my uh, my uh, holdings in my other companies and I walked away. And everybody that I worked with thought I was crazy. And I've done nothing else now. We're going into our ninth year. And now you have like a whole community that like, it's just crazy. Like your community is, it's, and it's just, and it's, it's just so cool. Like, I mean, that's the only way I can say it. Like, because I, I'd heard it, like it was weird 
before I actually started listening to your shows, like I had heard, heard different people like say, "Oh, the Survival Podcast," and I was like, "Oh, it's just those prepper guys." <laughs> and, and then, like, as more like for me personally, I guess my journey of like just really becoming like a fully realized libertarian or a anarchist or my a term my me and my friend try to are trying to t- have take off as anarchopreneur and uh and it's just like you know it it, it was kind of like a natural thing like if you really want to be resilient and you really w- say you're you're for this freedom you got to do shit and you got to like be prepared and that's your whole message and and then it like it kind of came full circle I'm like man I really got to check this guy out and um and it it's it's uh it, it's that's a cool story to hear um so you you'd had how many different companies and how did you start kind of figuring out passive income by the way because i think that's that's something i, I want to touch on a little bit just because sure it's, it's something not enough people really focus on so it, one of the jobs that i had before i kind of really went into self-ownership uh was working for a company called fluke networks they were in the cable testing industry and i was you know brilliant enough to take that job right and 2000, right? So that was like the top of the dot com. And I took over like the best territory in the country and then crash, right? All the tech industry just went on its face. So to be fair, the company was pretty committed to marketing and things like that, but they hadn't figured the internet out yet. And they started deciding, well, what we'll do is we'll do these talks I was talking about, like where we get all these uh, Bixie registered, it it doesn't really matter, but they, they needed courses that qualified for continuing education to uh, to keep their certification. Just leave it at that. And well, we'll, we'll get this these, these talks certified for those continuing education credits. That way we'll get all these people from all these companies to come in and listen to basically a sales pitch on cable testing and network testing and sniffers and OTDRs and stuff like that. So they did that and it was brilliant except so then you had your inside salesperson just calling people all day long and trying to fill up a room that you, you know, and we were doing maybe 20 of these a month uh, for like a, a two month blitz and trying to fill these rooms up. And, you know, you've now got this huge marketing outlay and can you fill the rooms up? So I was like, this internet thing, I, I get this internet thing. And uh, I started developing these web pages that basically marketed the seminars. That's all they were. It's just like book yourself into the seminar. And it, the funny thing was it didn't even really book you into the seminar because the company wouldn't do it yet. So all it did was it kicked out an email to my inside salesperson who then would call you up and actually book you into the seminar. And they were free to come to. So I started filling all my seminars. And at about the same time, I had started working with a company called Cognigen that was a reseller for like long distance phone service and stuff like that. So I started taking these same techniques over in, into that world and selling long distance phone service online back when people actually used to buy it. And that was really my first passive income stream because you get a person to take your service and you get a commission off their bill every month. That's and and awesome. that, that, that worked out nice for, you know, like four or five years till everybody had a cell phone and everybody had free long distance, et cetera. But the skills transferred. So then I went into the world of Google AdSense. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but mm-hmm. um, AdSense is like when you're on a website and you see Google ads on a website other than Google. Yeah. And when this thing first came out, by this point, I was competing with like thousands and thousands of other people selling the same commodity that's long distance service. So I could like whip up a page and get Google to rank it in like two days on all kinds of various long tail topics, if, if you if you call them that. So like construction equipment or, or what have you. So I started running all these sites, these little mini sites with all these Google AdSense. And that worked out great because they paid really good at the beginning to get everybody involved. And all of a sudden I was making two, $3,000 a month doing literally nothing. 
Then this bald guy comes on American Idol named Chris Daughtry. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. So I put up this this it's still up to it's a horrible looking site called Chris Daughtry fans, but this guy takes off this site takes off and, and I start pulling down like six seven thousand dollars a month for several months just from people clicking on ads. Wow! And I was doing again I was doing absolutely absolutely nothing and I made the site look way worse than I'm capable of doing because I figured if Fox looked at it or whatever they'd be like oh it's some kid's site and they did they left me alone. So then I was you know, kind of taking off with the Google AdSense thing. And this is all leading up to eventually deciding to do a podcast and keep everything in-house. I was making great money. And then Google just decided to change the rules, change the payouts. And you know, $7,000 worth of income became $700 worth of income became you know, $170 worth of income a month. And in all that path, I learned all these skills for marketing and internet-based marketing and search engine optimization and things like that, which were really key to the early success of the show because it was able to get ranked for things like survival pop- podcast and survival and, and other terms in that niche. Um, and that, that led me to realize something, though. All these things that people do today that are third-party reseller things, Amazon affiliates, et cetera, they're fine, but they're, they're gas money income, right? Yeah. They're they're, they're maybe your car payment, but you, you better not really need it for your car payment or stuff like that. And if you make a lot of money on them, fine, but don't build, don't build your primary business income on something where somebody else can change the rules. Take the money from the customer directly and, and find a good way to exchange value for value in that because I'm not going to change my rules, right? I'm not going to fire myself. I'm not going to cut my own commission, what have you. So that's kind of how I came into that. That's a long answer, but it's a it's a long story. No, no, that's fascinating too because uh, something else, which and we're kind of jumping around, but when you started Permit Ethos, something that blew me away was you raised a ton of money fast without Kickstarter or anything. You did your own crowdsourcing, which is just unbelievable to me. Uh, yeah, we sold a thousand PDCs at three hundred dollars a pop. And that was our initial limit on how many we were going to sell. And we did that an hour and 40 minutes. And then we closed it. And then we opened it back up at a higher price point without some of the special benefits for people that really wanted to be part of the beginning. And I think we sold like another 250, 300 uh, at that price point. So that was that was kind of really blew even me away at, at how responsive my audience was. But people looked at that and said, oh, look at that. That's like overnight success. But what it really was at that point, I had six years into the show. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it was overnight success. It, it was you were giving people a product. Like most of the time when you give your money to um, – I mean, and, and the thing is too for people that don't know what a PDC is. I mean you get – for $300, that's actually quite a good deal for it's a cheap. PDC. Yeah. It was stupid cheap. Yeah, so you, you're for, – for that much, I mean not only are they contributing to a, a great idea for a business but also – they're also getting really a lot of value back, so I, I think that's it was brilliant. Um, so when when did uh, and not to go back, but uh, but we kind of are. So with homesteading, right. <laughs> so with homesteading, uh, when did you first really get interested in that? Was that just from being a country boy and remembering what like your, yeah. your grandparents did, and it was like a way to reconnect? Yeah, I mean, when I grew up, I mean, just to put it in perspective, where I went to high school, they still close school on the first day of deer season. Till this day, and we we hunted, we foraged, and we had our little homestead. And we didn't do it because we were trendy. We did it because food was expensive, and we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and we were preppers because in Pennsylvania, especially in the eighties, 
it got really freaking cold in winter, and if your heat went out, you were screwed if you didn't have a backup source. So I grew up with that whole mindset. We had, you know, we had big community events where we'd go pick blueberries or wild strawberries, wild blackberries, all as a big group, and then split everything at the end. And uh, as people got older, you would always give some to them, and I was always kind of reinforced. That's kind of the the, the real meaning, I think, of the third ethic in permaculture, giving back to the community that's been part of it, you know, all along and contributing. Um, so that was all there and in me. But yet I was living in, like most successful professionals, you know, suburbia. So when I really decided I wanted to kind of kick it up a notch was right before I started the show. And I put that garden I was talking about in, in my little place I had down in Arlington. It was like a third of an acre. And I knew we weren't staying there. We had a place in Arkansas at the time. And I, I looked at it and I was like, man, I can – once I learned about permaculture, I was like, I can turn this thing into something amazing because small scales really got a lot of advantages. But I was also like, I'm only going to be here another year or two and it won't be mature and it's going to make it difficult to sell. Yeah. So I had to hold myself back. Then we moved to Arkansas. We had a, a you know what you call a bug out location up in Arkansas. We realized it was so inexpensive. Like, why do we live here anymore? Like, my son was off to college and, you know, we're free and we didn't, you know, I was working from home. My wife had, had been able to quit her job. And, like, why don't we just move to the place in Arkansas? So that worked out until my wife figured out she didn't like being away from family. So we had about 18 months up there before we decided to look for a place in earnest. So we really went heavy up there, but it was a difficult property to do livestock on. So I really hadn't done the livestock. It's when we moved back here to Texas three years ago. I made the deal with her. If we're coming back to Texas, I'm getting a place where nobody will bother me. No one will complain about what I do. It has to be unincorporated. We have to have internet access, and I have to have a good solid piece of land. I ended up settling for three acres because everything else was great. And when we got here, it was where I got to take all of that experience, all that knowledge, uh, all that history, all the things I wanted to do and really start working it up. And you know, at this point, we live a lifestyle that's a blend of like a, a technical entrepreneur and, and true full-on full-time farmers. We run a little duck farm. Uh, we've just added quail. I'm putting in a quail aviary. This uh, right now, I'm working on it. Uh, that'll be kind of the first, I think, of its kind as far as being able to deliver a true pastured quail product, both eggs and meat. And uh, it, it's been that last three years that we've really been able to not just talk about it, not just play around with it, but really build it up. We've put in oh a couple thousand trees on three acres. Um, we've built wicking beds. We've built ponds. We've built small garden ponds. We, if you can think of it, we've probably given it a shot. It's a harsh piece of land. I don't know how you're, you're kind of new to my show. So I don't know how familiar you are with the, the type of property that we have. It's relatively flat, looks beautiful. You dig a hole in the dirt. It's easy, great, beautiful black dirt for about four inches. And then it's limestone slab. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's my history of finding rocks to grow things on. Uh, Cause Arkansas was the same way, only it was granite. But yet we've been able to really transform the place. When we moved in here, almost everything was brown. Um, and it's it's green now. And I mean, to the point where the, even the neighbors that thought we were crazy are like, well, how are you doing this? And uh, it's it, it's really, it, it's the kind of thing where I, I wish I had 20 acres. You know, I wish I had 100 acres. I wish I had deep, fertile soils. I wish I could put in, you know, 20 acres and put in eight acres of water. I, I wish I could do that. But yet... We all find what works best for us. So this works for my family. This lets us live close enough to where my wife can can be connected to our son and my now daughter-in-law and our grandchildren and her sister. And, and it allows for that. It's close enough that I can get good internet so I can run my business. But I'm unincorporated and out in the county, as we say here in Tarrant County, where 
there, I, I don't need any permits. If a neighbor doesn't like something, tough. I mean, I try to get along with everybody, but if somebody wants to complain, there's nobody to complain to. No one's going to do anything. The sheriff has the jurisdiction out here. And I talked to one of the deputies. He said, unless you're cooking meth, we don't care. Yeah. So, I mean, we ended up in this place now where we can experiment without going out in the boonies. And I think there's a real advantage there because I don't think we could run our business, our, our agricultural side of the business, anywhere near as successful if I was, you know, like Paul uh, Wheaton up in the middle of Montana. Like, I don't know what he would do with, you know, 80 dozen duck eggs a, a week. You know, I really don't know if he would have a, a way to get rid of them all where we don't even leave the house. People come here and pay eight bucks a dozen for them. Yeah. So it, it's kind of we found the sweet spot, but I had to get drug kicking and screaming to it because I really wanted to be in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I did. You know, but I, I get it now, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we that's why you, you have a significant other, right? They, they pull you <laughs> in and keep you grounded. Uh, you know, a couple things there that you said. Um, well, first things first, if anybody listening hasn't eaten duck eggs, you definitely need to eat some because they're oh, delicious yeah. and they're bigger than chicken eggs. Um you can use because I think like when I'll make eggs in the morning, I all I need is like two eggs, and that's about four or maybe even five the size of chicken eggs, depending on how big the chicken eggs are. Um, but something you said because now you're going after quail too, and um, you know I, I recently read this book, and it was it was kind of like it, I posted in the it, it was in the regenerative ag thing because somebody was talking about farming ostriches, and I think it's kind of the right mindset, but there's different animals to work out, but. Um, do you think that that really is kind of another solution that not a lot of people talk about with with regenerative agriculture and decentralizing our food system, which is farming animals that people aren't used to? Like a lot of people focus on chickens and cows and stuff like that, but they don't necessarily focus on like yaks, ducks, quail, or, or other similar animals. And even you could even go in other directions. And I think like in reality, Mark Shepard's kind of hinted at this too, which is, you know, Farming animals is the best way to keep their population healthy in, in a lot of ways. Um, what do you what do you kind of think about that? I know you're you're doing quail and duck now. Yeah, I just kind of wanted your opinion about that. Well, there, there's a lot there, so let's let's kind of start out with like the niche animals, the ducks, the quails, the emus, or whatever. And I don't know if I'd do those because they're like dinosaurs and hateful creatures. But yeah. um, I think yes, because we did chickens, and everybody around here did chickens. And we were trying to get six bucks a dozen for our chicken eggs, which barely made it worth doing. And if someone didn't like the price and you said, well, go buy somebody else's chicken eggs, they'd say, very well, I will. So now we sell duck eggs for $8 a dozen. They're sold before the ducks lay them. And if someone doesn't like the duck eggs, the response can be, go buy the other duck eggs, to which the response will be, there, there are no other duck eggs, or they're $12 a dozen at Whole Foods, and their eggs suck, right? And they do. They're just watery. They, you know, I don't know where they get them. And it's probably not that they start out sucking. It's probably by the time they make it through their whole distribution chain, they, they get to a suck level. And they're, they're sourced from everywhere. They're not single source, so you, you really don't have, you have a wide variety of, of, of quality. And even if you do have a two decent qualities, there's an, and I think this is a problem for consumers, if I buy a carton of eggs, even if both of them seem good, whatever that means, if there's a noticeable difference one to the next, it, it, it starts making me go, what, what's up with that? Where when we sell a product, we sell a duck egg that has an orange golden yolk. 
and they're all like that. And you, you know, you when you drop it into a bowl to to do it sunny side up, you can poke the yolk with your finger, and it won't it bounces, it won't break. And if you cook it over medium, you can pick it up with a uh, with reactions to chicken eggs or or certain reactions to chicken eggs that don't have it from duck eggs. Then when they find you. You get a chance to deliver that product. They'll, they'll, they'll go, okay, I'll, I'll buy a couple dozen for eight bucks, uh, even though that seems a little bit high. And then once they taste it, okay, now now they're coming back. You know, Now they're on a list and they're like, I want four dozen. And we're like, uh, okay, three weeks from now. And they're like, really? And you're like, yeah, I have to take care of the customers I have. And, and I don't know if quail will go that well for us. There's more people around here doing quail than duck. But I, I also think if we can sell the value of what we're doing, which is – we're we're you know, and I have nothing against putting quail in cages. We're actually developing a product with another group to to make that more easy for suburbanites to do. But if you don't have to, why would you? And, and the reason is because they fly and they're little, and everything eats them, and they get away. But if we can actually develop a true pastured quail product, where that quail can actually behave like a bird and it's a happier animal, it's going to produce a better product. And then quail eggs, you know, I'm learning now as I start doing my marketing development research have all of these uh, what's the word i'm looking for um uh, like uh, no no uh health benefits yes but it's 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 uh, traditional but not traditional uh ethnic oh okay yeah traditional ethnic different ethnic groups and ethnic backgrounds and ethnic's not the right word either but you know like japanese chinese ayurvedic all these these historical uh health uses and you start looking at how much more nutrient density they have than a chicken egg, and you start to realize why they would have that. Yeah. And so by having products like that, it gives you something to talk about because what am I going to talk about in my marketing with a chicken egg? My chicken egg's better because my chicken's a happy chicken, right? Yeah. My chicken doesn't live in a cage, but in the end, it's still the same food product. It's probably a little bit better nutritionally, but it's still a chicken egg. I, I don't have this story. I don't have the, the greater protein count, the richer, uh, the higher levels of omega-3s, et cetera. And in almost all cases, when you go into these forgotten livestock, because that's what they are. They're not weird. They're not unusual. They're just – they don't work well for large-scale commercialization, so they've been kicked to the side as a small farm has disappeared. It, it's always the case that they're more nutrient-dense in, in almost every case that I've examined it. And it's because smaller animals or animals that are more diverse in their natural diet are going to produce more nutrient-dense quality food. Now, as far as animals being the best food source uh, or the best food source to produce, I, I highly agree because an animal will tell you right away when they're not getting their needs met. So you generally don't have them all die on you, right? If there's a drought, you just make sure their water's full and they don't die. Yeah. Um, and the density of food that they produce, the, the amount of nutrition produced you know, per unit is so much higher than a vegetable product. They don't spoil. They don't go bad. If I don't have a mark, if I have quail that I need to call and I need to sell those as a meat product and I don't have a buyer right now, I just feed them for another week. Just yeah. feed them for another week. I don't have to worry about freezing them. I, and then when I get a buyer, they're a minute apiece to process. You know, so I think that, you know, and with, you know, cattle, same type of thing. If you have a grass-fed cow and, and you're waiting another week to find somebody that wants to, you know, have it delivered to a slaughterhouse or whatever, you just give the cow another week of, of really great existence. And I think that that, that is, is huge. I also think it's it, it puts you less into direct competition with 
you know, Albertsons or, or, you know, whatever grocery stores in your area, because a pepper looks like a pepper. And actually, to be fair to the commercial industry, they do a really good job of producing products that look good in that world. The yeah. nutritional quality is not there. But if you look at green peppers or whatever at a farmer's market compared to green peppers at a supermarket, the ones at the supermarket are bigger, thicker walled, brighter colored, shiny, what have you. And people look at that even though it's the wrong way to look at it. They do look at that where when you're producing a steak, it's a steak, baby. That's what they, they get steak. They get bacon. They get sausage. They get eggs. If You see what I mean? Yeah. It, the, the, the commercial producer can't produce – not only can't they produce a better quality product, which they can't in the vegetable world, they can't produce a better looking product. Yeah. So it takes that away from them. No, and that makes sense too because another thing too with um, – unless like with vegetables, like thankfully like I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and it's like a, we have a pretty good foodie culture. Like we're, we're like an island I think for where we are in the Midwest – and but like if I went to any other city in Ohio where it's cheaper to live, um, it'd be way harder to sell somebody on vegetables. Like they'll be like, yours looks like crap compared to the grocery store. Exactly. Exactly. So, and it's not fair. And I can hear all the people out there who are really hard to produce a great quality vegetable product go, Ugh. <laughs> it, it, we're not saying your product's inferior. We're saying to the uneducated consumer's eye, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and they and they don't know what they don't know, and that's something that you have to take into effect whenever you're, um, you know, whenever you're going on a business venture. Um, and and so that's 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 a great answer. Um, yeah, the one book that let, I, let me add something yeah, there real yeah, yeah. quick though, because I think you can then sell a high quality veg, vegetative based product or fruit or nut or whatever direct to consumer. If you lead off, I think it's easier if you lead off with an easy sale like an egg product or a small meat product. Now you have a customer base. You have people that will listen to you. So like in this quail aviary that we're building, we're going to be able to grow a combination of microgreens and baby salad greens and just bundle those up into a salad because now it's an add-on product. Now it's a highly profitable product. And now the person who's already here to buy the duck eggs Selling them, you know, ten dollars worth of greens while they're here is easy because we have people driving, you know, an hour to pick up four dozen duck eggs. Yeah, now, th these are the kind of people that will pay a premium. So not only do we have the uh, just market to adjunct into and just up that average revenue per unit or ARPU. That's an important word for you entrepreneurs out there. It's a very important metric to look at. But we've actually identified the people that are so concerned about food quality. They're willing to drive here to pay $8 a dozen for eggs. So we have the perfect market for that vegetable product to go into now. Where if we lead off with that vegetable product, it's much harder to bring that customer to you. And I think that's, that's something like the cart for the horse type of thing. I mean, if you take care of a duck, it's going to give you an egg. You take care of a chicken, to be fair to chickens, they're going to give you an egg. A quail is going to give you an egg. You know that X number of weeks into that animal's life, you have a product for sale. It comes out over a long period of time, a little every day. It gives you time to get the product moved, gives you time to market the place, and then bring in these adjunctive products where what everybody wants to do is put a garden in, and all of a sudden they're looking at you know 40 rows of spinach, lettuce, and, and, and cilantro, and they have no place to move it to, and it becomes compost or chicken food. No, that's, that's a true statement. It's been um, – I recently signed up for uh, Curtis and Luke's course, and uh, I've been giving out a ton of samples of microgreens – but people seem to get a lot more excited about the eggs. So my, my friend has a bunch of chickens, my one partner, and we just we, we're just really getting started. But when I handed out the eggs, chicken eggs, 
people are so excited. Oh, it's chicken eggs from a farm. And then it's like, and then like that's going to open the door. I feel like a lot more than somebody's just like, oh, these people have awesome microgreens. And then most people are going to be like, well, what are microgreens? Yeah, it's like let me show you how to make an omelet with arugula microgreens. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, right, and a little a little uh, farmstead cheese, right? Oh, well now, now, now I have something to do with that microgreen. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then once people learn about it, then they'll be crazy about it. But no, I, that makes perfect sense, man. I'm really glad you went into that. That makes absolute perfect sense. Um. Yeah, the uh, the book that I was talking about, though, which which is funny, it was about like this this plan in the early 1900s, which I thought about sending to you for your history portion. It was I think it was like 1910. They wanted to to import African animals and farm hippos. It's like this this crazy story you should look into. It's called the uh, American Hippopotamus, and the, and surprisingly, the reason why it it was canceled or never proceeded had nothing to do with the fact that how many people. Hippos killing in here. Yeah, they kill more animals than anybody else. But it was interesting because they talked a lot about like turkey egg. Like this one congressman was like, I prefer turkey eggs over chicken eggs anytime. And it's uh it's by this guy John Moellum. It's a really fascinating short read. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can actually uh download it for free. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so I, I would check that out. But uh anyway, so so like kind of getting back into everything. So when you so you you got your podcast going. Um, you're, you're prepping and, and like for anybody that doesn't know, I mean, definitely check it out. Jack has good video series too, that he's going to be developing too, about how to get to, um, stages of survival, um, pretty quickly. I think you said you're trying to get him to stage three. Um, and, uh, is, is that what your new video? I heard you talk about it. Yeah. What I said is, and, and, and I was hoping to be in production during my off time, which is actually this week and with building the aviary and all, which is also not going to be done. I'll probably end up just like doing a video a day all through January and then launching that series in February where it's half done before I launch it. But what I, what I said is I, if, if you looked at like most Americans are probably a zero to a one, they're probably a one with preparedness, but they're actually a zero because they don't even know what they have. Yeah. So like they're, they're, you're, if you have a house with stuff in it, you're not zero prepared. But if you don't know what's there and you don't have the mentality on how to use it, you're a zero. And if we took – a level 10 would be a guy that if World War III happened and nuclear missiles went, he could go down in his bunker and live there for two years and pop his head back up and see what's going on and be fine. And that's a 10. I want to get you to a three. I want to give you the knowledge in 60 days to get yourself there in 180. Right. So when this when that series is over, you may not be there because we all have limits of budget and time and space. But to try to do it as low cost, as smart, with as much redundancy and as quickly as possible so that we can have people that are a three. And if you have people that like three sounds low, but for instance, we just had tornadoes rip through uh, the east here about 30 miles east of us. And if your house got destroyed by a tornado, you could have all the preps in the world. It doesn't matter. Your house is destroyed by a tornado unless you have a shelter you, you, you've got a problem. But what we had all around us was power outages while we have dangerous weather. So when, at the time you need most to monitor the, the weather uh, channel and, and what have you, you don't have power. So I have generators and all types of other things. But just as an example, I also have a really cool box we teach people to build in the back of my pickup. You have know, a regular uh, pickup truck toolbox, the ones that go across the back. And then there are two GC2 golf cart batteries. There's a 3,000-watt inverter and a second 800-watt inverter because two is one and one is none. And some other peripherals and things back there. So I just backed the truck up to the door, plugged an extension cord in, turned the TV on, slapped the uh, rabbit ears on it because the, the cable box didn't want to boot up off of the inverter on the truck. 
put on the, the local news station and was able to monitor the weather and also run my, um, my uh, modem and my uh, router and my laptop uh, from a battery bank in, in my closet. And that was really low tech. And it's not a lot of money to be able to do something like that. And, and that, to me, is maybe a four-ish on the truck box one, but the other stuff's pretty simple. Like, if you have that level of preparedness, the things that most people go through all the time, the things that have people standing in line for four hours to get a five-gallon can of gas during hurricanes and things like that, you can rock through those like they're just minor inconveniences. Yeah. And that's my goal is to get us – and if the more people we put into that level, the people that are kind of out on a zero – the more resources are left for them during that time to go ahead and fight over. So there actually is less fighting and less misery and less shortage. People call it hoarding, but it's not hoarding. What it is is responsibility. You know, the squirrels don't hoard nuts. They store nuts, and the ones they don't use grow to trees. And that's kind of the way that I, I look at prepping. What I want to do is have people be prepared enough to take care of themselves and their community. So you can't fix – You know, if you live in an apartment complex with 300 families, you can't be prepared to support 300 families. But you can support people on your left, your right, and underneath you or above you. And if you live in a regular neighborhood, you know, you're two neighbors this way, two neighbors that way, and the old lady down the street. And if, if we have thousands of people coming into that level of preparedness, the resiliency of the whole just skyrockets. Because, as you know, I'm not a big fan of waiting on government to fix it. And, and to be fair to government during these disasters, if, if I am an incident commander during one of these disasters and I come in and set up a base of operations, the first thing I do is I ensure the safety of my rescuers. Because dead rescuers say no, save no lives. And you can't argue with that. But that does mean the reality is you could be on your own for a long time. Yeah. And, and you can't put all your faith in eight hours when you have no food, no water, no heat, or no air conditioning, depending on the season, and no roof. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and you can't put all the faith in, in your government either. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, that's, what, that's what's really powerful about it. And I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just no, no, came out. And uh, because it's ultimately they're not. I mean, they're they're that's not their job to take care of you. You're a grown adult. Your job is to take care of you. Well, yeah. And you talked about anarchism, right? Yeah. Even even even, even moderate libertarianism, right? See, here's the thing. There's a lot of people that talk a lot of shit about being a libertarian, but it, and the reason I say it's a lot of shit is if you're not upping your self sufficiency as you're upping your libertarian IQ. Because I'm very much for moving down the libertarian scale all the way to anarchy or voluntarism or whatever you want to call it. Um, but if you're not taking your ability to care for yourself up as you do that, then you're just talk. Because you say you don't need government, but the first time those systems come out from underneath you, you're going to be standing in line like everybody else. To me, I always want to be the guy that if there is going to be a line, I can stand at the front of it and help a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree. And and the when you just said that, the first thing I thought was, uh, and I don't like either of these guys, but Chris Christie when he was he, uh, when he was talking all the crap about Obama, and then the New Jersey stuff happened. You see him and Obama walk down the beach, and they're best friends. And it's like you know, that's to me, it's like that. That's kind of the symbolism of it. If you're going to talk smack about government, and you're not going to be resilient, and you're not going to be able to provide things for yourself and help other people and live what you preach. Then there's no, you know. Then you're not anything. You're just, you're just really a uh, contrarian. You're, you're a reflection of what you just talked about. Christie's tearing down Obama, yet yeah. they're best friends. 
Trump and Clinton are going to war, but they were just at his, his, his wedding, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all a gimmick. And that's why so many people in society would behave that way. They don't even know they're doing it because if you actually see these people as leaders, that means you're a follower, okay? Yeah. And, and that's, I, I don't think people get this. Like when you, because you talk about anarchism or something, oh, it'll never work, whatever. Like it's working right now. You just don't see it. Yeah. But what also is working is if you believe in the system and you believe that these people in government are leaders, then you are naturally, even subconsciously, going to emulate much of their behavior. And it, you're going to emulate it at the level you're capable of. Right, so you can't emulate spending nine million dollars to play golf in Hawaii for Christmas, right? Yeah. But you can emulate it in a pseudo materialistic way, where you put your family in a deep debt over the holidays in the name of having a great Christmas. When, when what your family really needs you to do is look after them, take care of them, and make sure that shit doesn't happen to them. Yeah. But that's if you look at all the problems Americans have, they're all just recreations of what our so-called leadership is doing, both in, in, in politics and in the corporatocracy as well. Yeah, 100%. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting too, like I remember when I first really started to separate myself from libertarianism, which was when uh, I voted for Gary Johnson, and I was like, everybody was happy about 1%. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> what, is what is the point of this? Like, why are we happy about not getting our ass kicked in an election for yeah. supposedly the head the head monkey that can control everything and yeah. it's uh it's it's so silly um when it so for you personally like when did you when did you kind of figure out that you know this this system is is because I, I think for me like personally like i i think i was always an anarchist i just didn't realize it but yeah when did you start to figure it out because i i heard on your show you said you were out of the house when you were 16 yeah so. and so that that kind of wakes you up right there. I had a, I won't go deep into the sob story or whatever. My parents were crazy and they were getting a divorce at that point and neither one of them would leave, leave the house. So I did because I, I was going to literally kill myself by being there. And then I joined the army in my uh, middle of my 17th year, left pretty early before my 18th birthday. I uh, came back at 21 and it, it kind of led to all the things we've already talked about from there. So yeah, I had to t take care of myself early on, but I, I'll admit it. I was a Republican. I was also a lesser of two evils Republican. Yeah. I was also an 80s child, right? If yeah. you're an 80s child and you have like the, the country boy self-sufficiency thing, Ronald Reagan was cool, right? Because yeah. you, you didn't understand saving Social Security meant the largest tax increase in the history of the country. You didn't know that. You just knew that he took care of the old people and he was a cowboy, yeah. right? He bombed the shit out of people. And when you're a kid, especially from a military family, bombing the shit out of people's cool. So I, I came at it from kind of the, 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 the right wing, but always libertarian, but I didn't know the word. I didn't learn the word until about 2000. Yeah. And, and then it was like, it was like a Glenn Beck libertarianism for me at first. Like a, it's, it's, it's this wing within republicanism of, of Republicans that are, are more open to certain things. Like I don't care if two gay people get married because why would I, I'm not mentally, I don't have a mental problem. Right. You know, cause yeah. I'm, I've always believed if, if, if your marriage is affected by gay marriage, you or your spouse are gay. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's the only way it affects your marriage. So I always had like this problem with in the, the Republican Party. Marijuana was another big issue for me. I don't smoke pot, but I don't care if you do. I've never been in any kind of altercation with somebody high on pot. Drunk, sure. High on pot, give the guy a Twinkie and a game of Tetris, 
goes away. Right. <laughs> so it was like it didn't make any sense. We were spending all this money on this war on drugs. And in in that time, eventually I found the Libertarian Party. So I'm like, there's a Libertarian Party. And I had heard of it before, but kind of in passing. Like way when I was a kid, like when, you know, they get 1% of the vote and everybody makes fun of them and you hear libertarian and all you can hear in your head is liberal. And I didn't even know what it was. I find the libertarian party. This is awesome. Get connected with the LP in Texas. I end up running for Texas state house uh, as a libertarian and getting like 18% of the vote in my district and becoming like this diehard libertarian and then realizing this has actually changed nothing. All this has done is show me. All of the biases I was holding on to, all of the things I was still buying into with Republicans and actually expose them for me and make me realize there is another way. But this doesn't make any sense either. So then I kind of became a disruptor with my show because by then I'd gotten into doing the show. And I'm like, the one thing we can do is scare the shit out of these people, whether you're going to vote against them or for them or not, to at least stop things and govern. Call your congressman, that type of thing. That was early on in the show. I said that a lot. And I started to realize this this doesn't matter either. We live in an oligarchy, for God's sakes. You, you look at the propensity of a, of, a, of a law to pass. If everybody's for it or everybody's against it, the law is still like 30% likely to pass. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense if a democracy actually exists. And yeah, I know it's a republic, you constitutionalist, but come on. It's – you know, electively, it's a democracy if, if, if the vote matters. But if, a, if, if corporations want a law to pass, it has a 60 to 80 percent likelihood of eventually getting passed. So yeah. it was like, OK, so this is all crap. This doesn't mean anything. And I was like this, this, this libertarian holding on to libertarianism because anarchy can't work. There has to be there has to be some level of control for all these people that are out there. And I spoke twice at Liberty Forum for the Free State Project. The second time I spoke, I was up there as their keynote. And I talked to this dude. I can't remember his name, but he's like a guy, you know, piercings where you can see through his ears to his neck and what have you. And uh, he's telling me, he's like, those other people don't matter. Like, what do you mean they don't matter? He goes, none of this shit's going to work. Republicanism doesn't work. You know, the Democratic Party doesn't work. Libertarian Party. None of it works. It it just, it is, right? So do you need government? They tell you not to steal from other people. I'm like, well, no. He goes, okay. Then, then you don't need government for that, right? So he said that in of itself is anarchism. He started talking about business, and he, I started explaining, like, you know, I always write my, my business contracts to require non-binding arbitration as a first uh, measure and then binding arbitration excluding the state. He's like, that's anarchy. Yeah. Like, that's anarchy? He's like, he's like, yeah. He goes, if it could work. And you could just push a button and make it happen. Would you do it? I'm like, yeah. He goes, then you're an anarchist. And I'm like, no wonder I've been so freaking miserable. I didn't know what I was. <laughs> and I, I came up with kind of my own way of presenting this. And I just felt like all these years of – and this is like really important for your anarchists and your, your audience. Stop talking about libertarians like they're assholes. Stop talking about them like they're stupid, right? Stop making them the enemy. You're, the, you're not helping, Right. Stop bashing every single guy that's a cop. Stop bashing everybody with a government job. Stop. Stop bashing people because you're not helping. You're 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 so polarizing with that. And and what I've tried to explain is it's all about you and what you do. It's seven generation thinking. Right. And it's also even if you still think the system can work, you're still better off as an anarchist. Who made a difference in this world? If you look at all the people that even the governments today hold up and go, this is a great example. They were all anarchists. Yeah. Rosa Parks was an anarchist. She didn't go down to the freaking you know, 
town hall meeting and demand that she just sat in the front of the bus, right? All of the great names that we think of that actually changed the system did it from outside the system anyway. Uh, in modern day anarchy, th people like Ron Finley in uh, California that just started guerrilla gardening all over Los Angeles till eventually the, the, the city council goes, we're going to pass a law that says this is okay because we've decided, you didn't decide anything. You got tired of looking stupid, yeah. right? You got tired of it not working. You got tired of all of a sudden people are pissed off that you're tearing gardens out and you're afraid to lose your job. But that didn't happen because Ron Finley went to town council meetings or city council meetings to speak for, you know, that, that, that 15 minutes they allow people to speak at the end or whatever and nobody listens to you anyway. They're like texting and shit while people are doing it. It was because he went out and planted. There's a guy, I can't think of his name, but Jeff Lawton just had the video out uh, a few months ago that started cutting the curbs in Arizona so that the water would go instead of down the road into these tree wells and then like transformed the whole neighborhood. And now the city has decided new developments need to be built this way. <laughs> well, but but he didn't ask, and technically he was breaking the shit out of the law. Yeah, and you start realizing like all of these methods of like these passive resistance that actually achieve anything is anarchy. Not to mention when you get up in the morning and, and no one tells you what clothes to put on, and you put those on, that's anarchy. It's a lack of an authority figure. And when I understood that, I was just like, why the f? Are all of you people that are always mouthing off about anarchy not explaining it that way? Why are you just telling everybody else how wrong they are or telling everybody else they're a statist or telling everybody else they're a, a child killer or some shit like that? You, it, it's, it's not even a, like, you know, you win more or you attract more bees with honey than vinegar or whatever. It flies with honey than vinegar. It's what works. Yeah. People don't respond well to being told they're stupid or evil or bad. And, and every single person that's running their mouth like that drives on a road every day, right? Because that's what's there. And the, you need to realize everybody else in this life is using what's there from their point of understanding right now. And very few of us grew up anarchists. Yeah. Uh, there's a few, but most of us didn't. We had to get there too. And we need to realize other people need time to figure this out. Absolutely, man. That was well said. And, uh, and that's a thing too. And I think one thing that you, you talk about within the community which I always uh, support is, you know, do shit, man. Like, don't just talk about it. And it, it gets I, – I've never read Ayn Rand or Murray Rothbard or any of those people. I'm sure they have fascinating books. But, like, people just want to talk about that. And it's like, man, you're just creating a dogma for yourself. You like, know, that's so funny because I hear people all the time, you're just parroting Ayn Rand. I'm like, never read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> yeah. Never read The Fountainhead. Ne I know the names because it's talked about. I, I have never read any of those books. And when people say, well, you know, you should because it's everything you're talking about. I'm like, then why do I need to read it? <laughs> yeah, why do I need to read it if I already came to this? Because this is all, for me, this is all organic. Yeah. Right? And and, and it, it's, it's, it's without a an agenda of conversion, right? It's, it's simply... This is what works for me. If you want to keep doing things your way, go ahead. But you'll notice that I'm pretty happy and you're pretty angry. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's to me, that's much more effective. Yeah, it's 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 the same thing with like, you know, if I'm not a Christian, but people that I'm inspired by that are Christians, it's usually people that are living the life that they're talking about instead of trying to jam a, a book down someone's throat, which is this it's the same thing. And it, you know, you could jam Ayn Rand down someone's book just like you can jam the Bible down someone's book, or you can just be happy and live your life by a set of principles that you believe in and make you feel fulfilled. And um, and I think it, it, it all goes back to the same thing. Um, now, before, we are running out of time, but I do want to talk to you about permaculture, and we, we've talked about it, we've handed on it a lot, 
But I think like, you know, um, I, th- I think, you know, I, I would like to just ha- hear you talk about how you kind of got involved with it and then then networked with uh, Jeff Lawton and everything else like that. And I've talked about Jeff Lawton on the show before, but I think it's it's definitely a good way to close out this uh, this interview. Yeah, Jeff was definitely my my on ramp in the permaculture. Um, I somebody when I started the show sent me Greening the Desert, and as poorly made as that is as a film because it's just like a slideshow. <laughs> what what it actually conveyed blew me away, and I just started looking at that and going, "Oh, this Aussie with a British accent or whatever the hell he is that I can barely understand can do this in Jordan. What the hell is my excuse in Texas?" You know, yeah. and so then I just, you know, I really kind of got into permaculture, discovered Bill Mollison. And I think one of the greatest things you can do for yourself education wise is Barking Frogs Permaculture. Uh, had, and there's a lot of places it's at now. Uh, there's like a hundred and some odd page PDF that is a transcription of uh, talks given by Bill Mollison in the early 80s during PDCs here in America, which is probably better to listen to him because you can understand what you read a lot better than you can understand old audio of Bill Mollison. And uh, I, I read that, and then I discovered the Global Gardener series with Bill Mollison. and I watched those and, and and learned about all these different climate types. And along the way, I I was lucky that very early in, I didn't get seduced by the techniques. And I think that's the number one thing that hurts people in permaculture to get seduced by the techniques. It's hugel culture. And so everything they look at, I'm going to build a hugel mound there. Or it's swales, so everything needs to be swaled or whatever. Or it's you know wicking beds or whatever it is, whatever the technique is. I, I was really fortunate that somewhere along the line, going all the way back to my years in the military, I went, it's troubleshooting. That's yeah. what it is. It's systems-level troubleshooting. Instead of imposing my desire for my garden to line up with my fence in a square rectangle, I look at the landform and say, if I want a garden, where's the best place for a garden that I'm going to be cutting herbs and and using vegetables from every day on my property? It's not the back of the yard because I need it right outside of my kitchen. Now, should I put it in line with the fence? No, that's stupid. It doesn't line up with the solar orientation and the land is wrong that way. It's going to be running downhill. So let's put this thing on contour and that and and then you start realizing, okay, the techniques are the results, right? So what I what I actually try to explain with permaculture from my view is it's it's strategy, techniques and tactics. Right, And if we look at that through a martial arts lens, a strategy isn't even a martial art like Taekwondo or Sistema or Jeet Kune Do or whatever you know, one you want to put on it. The strategy actually is avoid conflict or survive conflict when it's unavoidable. That's a strategy. Right? The, the, the technique in series of techniques are things like a Taekwondo. Right? Where you'll learn tactics like a block and a punch to the throat. Right? Yeah. So – you don't walk around because you've taken Taekwondo looking for an opportunity to punch somebody in the throat. When the strategy requires that you avoid being injured and you have to respond to a certain way and the opportunities there to end the conflict with a punch to the throat, then and only then do we punch somebody in the throat. And it's a serious matter when we do. Well, taking a multi-ton excavator – and digging a 500-foot-long ditch we call a swale on a contour line is also a serious undertaking. So we should only do that when it makes sense for the design. And, and I feel very fortunate that it was very, very quickly that I kind of caught on to that. And 
I just kind of got on anarchists for telling, you know, the non-anarchists, you're just doing it wrong without explaining it. I have to catch myself in not doing that all the time in permaculture because I see people constantly. I just bought a property, Jack. I want to put a swale over here. Why? <laughs> Why do you want to put a swale? Well, you put swales on your property. Okay. I have three acres. Uh, three quarters of an acre has swales on it. There's a reason. There's a reason those are there. Like, so what opportunities are here? And it's like they didn't even think of it. But but they, they've seen videos of people doing it, so they want one too. Um, and they're in a, a very resilient, non-brittle landscape with high rainfall amounts, with low slope, and they have this beautiful existing ground cover. Don't put a swale in there. You're going to tear the land up for no reason. Let's let's look at other methods of if you want a food forest, how do we fit that in using chicken tractors or whatever? And and, and this has actually changed my entire view of how to build a business, how to plan and develop a community. This thinking that was always there at the root because I, I came from a you know a, like we talked about technical background and a mechanical background and understanding that when a truck doesn't work, you don't just assume. It's, it, 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 there's this is the problem. You actually start at what is what is the the root of this system, and does this work? It works. Okay, so does this work? That works. Okay, does this? No, there's a failure there. Okay, and now I've located the point in the system that needs correction. So I'm not going to yank a starter out just because it won't turn over because there might not be anything wrong with the starter to make it kind of blunt. And you, when you realize that, you start to realize that most people in their lives that's exactly how they operate. Something breaks, so I throw it away, right? Uh, the neighbors have a better one, so I need one too. Yeah. And, and that, that once you change that, so then you start to look at your businesses. And basically, my podcast is a permaculture business. Not because I talk about permaculture from time to time, but because it's built on that type of system, systemic level thinking. And it's also built on the concept of ethics and principles within permaculture. So, you know, don't harm the earth. I do everything I can in my business to not cause environmental harm. Um, it, it's pretty low impact to begin with. I use a microphone that's ten years old at this point, so you know. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. So it's it's pretty yeah. low, but don't harm people. So when I started the, the the show, there was a part of it that was like some of these people that are bad people that I would I would literally slaughter, right? And now it's like I'm not going to worry about them. Because I can't change them, but I can sure hold up examples of what's good. So now I only actually expose people that are doing really bad things when it's necessary to protect others. For, so, for instance, I've got something I'll be releasing Monday when I come back next week uh, about uh, somebody in the permaculture world that's done some pretty nasty things to people. If you're going to spend money with them, you should know. Only because I'm being asked, right? Yeah. So, so now I want to focus more on, on not harming of people, even people that I don't like. And then this return of surplus. So – what we do with the, the 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 business is we try to take as much of what we produce out of it, we put it back into it, and that's just not financial capital. That's that's social capital. That's sub communities. You talk about the community that's the survival podcast. The reality is, TSP has become this like this nucleus that just keeps popping out new communities, and some of them I'm deeply involved with and I've founded. Some of them I've kind of set up and then just walked away and let them organically run themselves, like our Zello chat group. I'm on there twice, three times a year. I set it up. People took over. Moderators did a great job. I walked away. Or like the regenerative ad group. I'm really highly involved with that because it's kind of one of my new babies. And all of these communities are coming out because I realize I don't need to control all of them. And if I tried to, there wouldn't be anywhere near as many. 
and is a natural result. We have thousands of people in all these little communities. And sooner or later, if you're part of one of those communities, you find out about the podcast. And this keeps momentum into growing the podcast. But I didn't really build them for that purpose. I built, I built them because they made sense. Yeah. Because there was a need for them. But there's this natural return, this natural karma. And I don't mean spiritual karma. It's just a natural energetic karma that we create when we do things for the right reasons. And the, you, know, you, you mentioned how many PDCs we sold and how much money we earned to start Permit Ethos. That's because we had huge amounts of social capital built up. People felt like they could trust us and they wanted to be part of what we were doing. And then we sold them a good product at a price that was very fair yeah. at the same time. So like permaculture led to all of that. And I, I think that it's a disservice when we look at permaculture and we see it as just a way to grow food in a healthy way. Because that's such a small, tiny piece of what it really is. It's a holistic systems level thinking. And, and the reason that I know we're as teachers, we're not conveying that at a high enough level is I meet people that are pretty informed that say things like, well, I don't know what's going to really end up being like the big thing globally. If it's going to be permaculture or it's going to be aquaponics or it's going to be biochar. It's like, hold on. That's all permaculture. Yeah. Right. That's all. It, it's how that tool is then applied that. And that's where people fall apart. This strategy the technique to the tactic. So with, with permaculture, a strategy might be to drought-proof a landscape. And then the techniques are all of the things that we learn inside the permaculture umbrella. And the actual application of a technique to a specific area is a swale to infiltrate water and spread fertility in this one area. But unless we start from the strategy level, all we end up is with this very disconnected, disjointed system. And, and a bunch of students running around that have taken PDCs and don't even know that biochar fits straight into permaculture. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it, it's funny to me in a way. It's also a little sad. And I think it's because we're trying to do so much so fast. And that's good. But we also kind of need to make sure we're taking more time with and realize that in these, these – this is the thing. When you set up a physical community and somebody new shows up – Everybody knows they're kind of the greenhorn, right, from my Yankee upbringing in, in the mountains, right? That's the greenhorn. And it's a, not a bad thing to be a greenhorn. It just means you need to be kind of brought in and explained to it. And you're going to get really excited about things that aren't that big a deal. You're going to get really worried about things that aren't that big a deal. And it's okay because we're all going to be right here with you. And in a couple of years, you're going to be right up here with the rest of us. In a virtual community, you have people coming in all the time that they just found out that hula culture is a thing. And they're excited as shit about it. Or they've just found out about an underground greenhouse that that even exists. Or, you know, or they've just found out about you know, a, a family growing a whole bunch of food in a small backyard. And, and they think it's going to save the world. And they have a little bit of Messiah complex. And they come in like, ah! And then people are like, ah, that's old. And, and what you've just done is taken all of that, that just raw energy, that raw excitement, and you've just kind of crapped on it. Yeah. Where we need to be cultivating those people. Like That's like when you go outside and you go – I've been trying to grow trees, and I've been and I got trees dying, dying, dying. And one of my apples fell on the ground, and this this apple seedling is now growing by itself. It's small, it's tiny, but I want to protect that yeah. because that was that's that's organically produced, right? And I don't mean the USDA government. I mean that happened all by itself, and that means that's a strong bit of energy in the ground right there. I need to cultivate that, and we need to be mindful in our online communities especially of those people 
and be more embracing of them and a little bit more forgiving because I've seen some tensions lately in some other groups with, you know, this is the 500th time this has been posted. Yeah, well, the person that posted it just found it yesterday and doesn't know that, right? And also, I I was going to say, too, people don't hear what you say. They hear what you keep saying. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing, too, right? If, If you know anything about marketing, it's generally seven touches to create an action. Yeah. So that's not always the case, but usually if you're actually going to get someone to to open up and spend their money with you or come to an event or truly not just listen to a couple things, but truly become a follower of a show, you have to touch them about seven times. So that person is posting something that you've seen 500 times and you're bored with. Just let it go if you're not in the mood to talk about it today. But they might be posting it for someone else who's going to rock on and be a great teacher, and that might be their seventh touch. And that person that posted it might go away and never even come back. They might lose the wind out of their sails. But it might have been that one thing that that person that, that actually does kind of really become a rock star in our world needed that one more exposure to go over. And we need to realize that's what's going on every day. It's a synergistic world. Yeah, absolutely. Um and and just to kind of close out, because I, I, kept, I kept you over an hour, Jack. I appreciate all your time. No big deal, man. But uh, Permaculture Voices is coming up. I'm going to be there. Jack's going to be a keynote speaker there. Um, do you want to tease the audience what you're going to be talking about there or just keep it as a surprise? Well, I can, I can give away some of it because I'm doing a show with Diego tomorrow anyway for his uh, interview with Diego for his show tomorrow. I don't know when he'll air it, but it'll be soon. Uh, and we're going to talk about this very subject. So you get to break it. Um, for my keynote, I'll be discussing ways that we can actually take permaculture more mainstream and and not just permaculture, but regenerative ag and and restoration agricultural models mainstream, actually to win buy-in from others so that we can actually make this thing what it can be and to convey that message in a way that other people will understand it. Um, for my track talk, which will be the more technical talk, I'm going to be talking about my duck business, uh, and how we built that, how we basically took, um, you know, we, we kind of got rid of the chickens just about this time last year. And, and this time last year, we had like 18 ducks. That was it. And we brought in that first big group that we did the Duck Chronicles with. And if you want to know about that, guys, you can go to duckchronicles.com and you'll go to my YouTube playlist. We brought that first big group of 50 layers in. And, and at this point, we're well into the mid hunt and like 150, 160 birds. We have restaurant customers. We have we, we've never left the place to to take eggs to anyone. We've never been to a farmers market. We're expanding into other operations, and I'm going to do a talk on how we did that. So we went from one year from basically just ducks being a, an oddity to being a a significant income. And when I say significant income, you know we make eight hundred to nine hundred dollars a month in in profit off of our birds. And we do that by working like an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. And yeah. that's not bad money. It's not, you know, it's not retirement money. That could pay a mortgage. It's, it, yeah, it, it doesn't quite cover our mortgage. But it's, it, you know what? If you take away the, the extortion part of the mortgage, the property <laughs> taxes, it does. It pays, it pays our mortgage on our farm. And that's, that's awesome. just from ducks. And that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to go into the breeds that actually are profitable because and, and why I don't do meat animals as far as ducks go. Uh, and then how actually my animals eventually will become meat animals, but I can make 30 ducks worth $1,400 by adding some cheap pork to them and making it into, you know, uh, duck sausage. Uh, but that bird's already produced 350 to $380 in profit for me. 
instead of raising a duck for 11 weeks to sell it for 30 bucks if you can and make $10 off of it. So that's going to be the more technical side of the talk. That's awesome, Jack. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. I had a, I had a blast talking to you. I'm sure the listeners enjoyed this episode as well. Um, so if people want to find you, what's the best way for people to, to find you and, and reach out to you and become an active member of your community? Um, the survivalpodcast.com is kind of the gateway to everything. Um, you can find our regenerative ag group there. You can find my YouTube, my Facebook, uh, all that stuff is there, all the different social media ways to connect with me. Uh, I do really invite you guys that are into regenerative ag to get on the regenerative ag Facebook uh, page. I'll be open and honest. We call it a voluntary dictatorship. We don't allow, I, I'm political. We don't talk about politics there. We talk about regenerative agriculture there because that's what we're there to talk about. And when I set that up, I explained, you know, I'm a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. But uh, when I'm in a group about mead, I don't post the score to the Steelers game, right? <laughs> we stay on point for that discussion. And that group's grown to almost 6,000 people now in less than 90 days. That group's amazing. I was thinking about edible mushrooms. I posted a question, and I had like, I think I had about 10 responses in about five minutes. I mean, it was powerful. What's gotten me is people like giving away the numbers behind their business units. Like when I started looking at quail, um, I said, you know, I'm looking at doing this, but when I look at game bird feed, is what you got to feed a quail, not the regular feed. You need a higher protein. Uh, I, and I don't know exactly how these numbers are going to work out. And Brad Davies, who taught at my last event, posted just the straight up numbers from his production. And he's been doing this five years. And I went, it's a non-issue. It's, it's, I'm just going to use the higher quality stuff like my ethics tell me I need to do. And the money's there. That It's a profitable concern. And knowing that and not having to – just take that, put it on the shelf, go on with life. Man, that was awesome. So, yeah, that's the best way to, 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 to get with me again, though, is the survivalpodcast.com. And if you just want to learn about the ducks, uh, duckchronicles.com. And if you like the stuff I'm talking about here with business, uh, I did a business podcast, about 130-odd episodes. Haven't done one in several years now uh, called Five Minutes with Jack. And the reason is because Five Minutes Jack became 15 Minutes with Jack, became an hour with Jack. Because when I'm teaching stuff like this, I'm passionate about it. So I decided eventually I'd put enough there that if you wanted to start a business, especially an online business, you had everything you needed to get up and really get going. Uh, so I just keep that there and it's just available and people can go all the way back to episode one and you know even learn. I go through some of the landmines, I call them, and mistakes I made along the way that you know didn't sink my business. But when you add them up over the years, probably cost me half a million dollars of money I didn't earn that I could have. And I give all that away for free. You can't buy anything at that website. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. So I'm going to I'm going to take that to to the lab. Just start at episode one. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say, right? Because it's it's published in chronological order, going backwards. So go to the archives and go forward with it. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to the show. <laughs> <laughs>